Presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. So glad to be back. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, back on the airwaves here on WBSM. And also broadcasting live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, where if you're listening to the show from home or from a mobile device, you can check out Spooky TV, see what's going on here in the Spooky studio with our three-camera shoot. And you can also interact in the chat room, thanks to our friends at Ustream. So uh, we're back after a week off, Bruins, last week. So now the airwaves are all ours, because they're now playing until Monday night. I think the Red Sox played earlier today. I don't know. I just know when I got in the car, I turned on the radio, there's no socks on. So I said, all right, we get to get right into it tonight with our guest, Peter Robbins, uh, who'll be joining us in just a moment. But uh, I ask you guys, Moniz, did you do anything fun on your night off last Saturday night? I watched the Bruins, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think you watched any sports at all. Uh, I mean, I when I was a kid, I used to watch a bunch of it, and it was actually kind of nostalgic. And uh, Matt Costa, what did you do on your Saturday night off? I ended up falling asleep. Yeah, yeah, that's the so, way to do it. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, I, I went to a uh, a party in my neighborhood, and uh, uh, for once, I w- I know what it feels like to be Bigfoot because when I got there, everybody's like, "Oh my God, he does exist!" <laughs> so uh, I had had a few drinks with the neighbors, and and I was in bed uh, before the second hour of this show would have even started. So nice rare night off for us, and. We're all refreshed and recharged and ready to come back to the program tonight because we're going to be talking about all things UFO with our guest, Peter Robbins. A little bit later on, we're going to tell you, too, about the South Coast Toy and Comic Show, which is coming tomorrow uh, here in Fairhaven at the Seaport Inn and Marina. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the start of the second hour, so you don't want to miss that. But we're going to be covering a few things with Peter of some really upcoming, uh, exciting upcoming UFO festivals and different events, as well as numerous other topics. Uh, as well, so and Moni's, of course, you know Peter very well. You guys, oh, I've known him about twenty years. Yeah, he's uh, been a good friend of mine, and he's a true gentleman. If if anybody can be called a gentleman, it's definitely him. And, and he's one of our favorite guests and a frequent guest and a good friend of the show. Yes, most definitely. All right, Peter Robbins is one of the best known investigative writers and speakers with regard to the study of UFOs and their implications. He's been involved in this field for more than thirty years as a researcher, investigator. Writer, lecturer, activist, and author. A regular fixture on radio shows around the country, he has also appeared as a guest on and been consultant to numerous television shows and documentaries, and is also the co-author of the British bestseller Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. He's lectured extensively both in the States and abroad, and uh, he's now joining us here on Spooky South Coast for, I don't know, Peter, you might be right behind Chris Balzano for a record number of appearances now. Uh, Chris and I are, are uh, neck and neck to have the world's record. And uh, good evening, gentlemen. And hey, Matt, watch who you call a gentleman. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your reputation. All right. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's 
you know the real Matt Moniz, Peter. You know not the not the uh, character that he plays here on the radio show, which is of course that far is different than the real Matt Moniz. <laughs> I could make big money writing an expose about that Matt Moniz, but he has stuff on me, and he's a soul brother. So you know, it's a mutual admiration society from the get go. And we always like talking about UFO stuff with you, Peter, because you have a, a very unique slant on a lot of the, the UFO news that comes out. And, uh, you know, you're able to put things not only in its current perspective, but in its, in its historical perspective as well. And I think that's why, you know, it serves well for you to be involved with some of these upcoming events, because there's a lot of history uh, coming up marking the Exeter UFO Festival, for example. Mm, yes, there is. Um that, uh, as you know, uh, Chris, is coming up on September 3rd, which is a Saturday. It is the third annual Exeter uh, New Hampshire UFO Conference, and this one is super special because uh, it's just a few short weeks prior to the 50th anniversary of arguably the most famous uh, UFO abduction uh, incident in history and the one that... Uh, really is the godfather of this area of study, and that's the Betty and Barney Hill uh, abduction. And I'm proud to say that um, our real uh, two stars, the two speakers that are going to anchor just a terrific all-day program, are Kathleen Martin and Richard Dolan. Um, Kathleen, I think, is one of ufology's greatest secret weapons. Um, she has a background in education and sociology. She's worked behind the scenes with MUFON for many years. Um, but Kathleen is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. And I don't think there was anyone closer to Betty in the last part of her life than her niece Kathleen, who has become, in so many words, the ranking scholar um, on the Hill abduction case. She's now working on her second book about the events uh, of 1961 there um, with Stan Friedman, uh, certainly a well-known uh, person in our field. And among the things that Betty gave her were the original reel-to-reel audio tapes of her and Barney's hypnotic regressions. Uh, some of your listeners may have seen a film that was made in the mid-70s called Incident at Exeter, uh, after John Fuller's excellent book on the subject. And I, I think it had no chance of being a commercially successful film. It was too damned frightening and absolutely 100% accurate. James Earl Jones, uh, quite a young man at the time, played Barney, and Estelle Parsons, a wonderful actress, still with us, I think even working on Broadway right now, played Betty in 2AT. Um, so Kathleen will be speaking uh, on the Hills case. Uh, Rich Dolan, again, um, probably the best-known historian in ufology, uh, with two current books in print, um, uh, UFOs in the National Security State, Part 2, and A.D., After Disclosure, which he wrote with the great uh, television screenwriter and producer uh, Bryce Sable. So, yeah, and for any of your listeners uh, who are in New England, certainly, or who can make it there, this is going to be one for the books. Uh, there will be other speakers, but Exeter itself is so historic. And for me, the town square looks like a courier and Ives print. Um, the town hall that we speak in was built in 1861, and I had a moment last year of just quirky sort of time travel reflection standing in the back of the house which was pushing the fire regulations to the max, certainly over 400 people in that hall. 
and then the three-quarter balcony that wraps around the top of it, watching Stan Friedman speak. And I thought to myself, now here is a guy with a beard talking about UFOs, probably not more than five or ten feet from the spot where um, another guy who became famous for having a beard but didn't speak about UFOs spoke when this place was brand spanking new. And that would have been a gentleman named Abraham Lincoln. So somewhere in the cosmos, the two of them crossed paths. And uh, you can all be part of it happening again. Uh, there is a chance that Stan will also be joining us. And again, a number of speakers who have not yet been announced. And it seems like uh, this is becoming one of the go-to events uh, in the UFO field every year now. Well, it's been a while since we've had a quality annual uh, UFO conference in the Northeast. You know, they're all over the country, but they tend to be in the West and the Southwest. Um, uh, John White, who uh, Matt knows, um, had a 10-year run with a, a series of, of conferences called the Omega Conference uh, that was uh, out those of North were, Haven, Connecticut. Those were And great. that stopped. Yeah. I mean, everybody and their brother was there and, and sister. It was an extraordinary lineup of people, but like most of these things, unless they're MUFON or organization-based, you've got one or two dedicated people or a family or a family and friends that do it as a labor of love. And I think um, coming into the third one here, um, and we're working on a tiny budget, um, I think we really have created an event that there is a buzz about, that has delivered quality stuff for the past two years, and this year will really make an important historic mark. It's also the weather's no doubt going to be gorgeous that weekend, so please come and support this event if you possibly can. I'll be there. Awesome. <laughs> and that'll be Saturday, September 3rd, 2011. Uh, Indeed. From 8.30 a.m. until 10 p.m., and uh, you can't beat the ticket price for it either. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, the events are all uh, all gratis, so. And yeah, yeah. ExeterUFOFestival.com is the website. Let me just throw that out there, too. That's it. That was, you read my mind. Well, and that's going to be uh, quite an exciting time. Uh, but also before that, uh, there's some other uh, events coming up as well, uh, including the Roswell Festival, which always happens, what, Fourth of July weekend, right? Or, that's right. And this year there's some fairly substantial changes in that um, up until uh, this year, and I don't know if it'll be a one-shot deal or if it will go back next year, the Roswell UFO Museum has always had its own separate conference and little festival events, and the city has staged its own uh, events. This year, uh, the mayor of Roswell decided that uh, the entire budget would go to the museum so they are organizing everything, and we'll wish them good luck and see how it goes. Uh, there is a parallel event going on, though, uh, that we had started last year. It went very well, and we're building on that this year, which is the Roswell UFO, well, Roswell Science Fiction Film Festival. But it's also going to have um, literally a contest for uh, young filmmakers, um, Screenwriters are invited to submit scripts. They're going to be having a film school going on. Um, and I think it's going to be a superb event. Uh, I'm also particularly optimistic that this is also going to anchor itself 
as an annual affair and get bigger and bigger. The state of New Mexico has a wonderful film board, and more films than we imagine are filmed or partially filmed in that gorgeous state. So they're already working with the folks uh, in Albuquerque that do this year-round. Uh, they're also networking with uh, some of our favorite folks in Hollywood. And, um, again, uh, there's going to be an awful lot going on there, uh, and I encourage anybody that can to go. Uh, the speakers at the museum, all quality folks, and um, it will be packed. There's not a lot of space in there, so uh, uh, if you're going, get there early. But the film festival... Um, that is going to be one for the books, I think, and something that uh, we're going to hear more of and see more of. And I think within the next few years, we'll rival some of the better-known uh, film festivals around the world. Well, if you're an amateur filmmaker, an independent filmmaker, and you want to work on the sci-fi genre, one of the biggest costs that you're going to incur is you know, the, the costumes, the creation of the creatures that you're trying to uh, portray in your film. And when you're in Roswell for that weekend... Uh, it, how hard can it be to just find some extras to come already in costume for you? Right, or real aliens. There will be yeah, plenty of them there. there. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm reading uh, Nick Redfern's latest book, The Real Men in Black. He'll be coming up on the show uh, in the next couple of weeks. And it talks about how at these UFO conferences, there are frequently these men in black characters hanging around uh, in the shadows, approaching people. And you go to a lot of these events, Peter. I was wondering if you've ever encountered any of those MIB-type entities. Well, I may have, and I, I, I tend to parse my words because I'm one of those frustrating authors, investigators, that's very specific about what they know from what they suspect, from what they deduce, from what they believe, from what they fear. Uh, yeah, there are always characters um, at UFO conferences. I mean, for most folks that don't go to them, I guess they figure everybody's a character. Uh, the fact is, overwhelmingly, these are regular folks from all walks of life who share an interest in this fascinating subject and, you know, are, I'm sorry to say, not, you know, wrapped in aluminum foil to keep out the gamma rays and wearing, uh, you know, pyramids on their heads and having crystals around their necks and all that good stuff. But it's, it's all welcome it, if you do. Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, but occasionally, you know, in all seriousness, there are people that you do wonder um, who they are, what they're doing there. Sometimes it's just intuition. Sometimes there's just something about them. Uh, I think also at times like that where you're in a hyper-specific atmosphere uh, and one that has a reputation uh, with a great deal of color to it. Um, you know, your imagination can take off a little bit, and um, I subscribe to uh, the premise that most things can be explained in conventional ways. At the same time, to paraphrase that uh, great thought that you don't have to be a paranoid to know that somebody is following you, of course, the forces that the agencies within the government, um, whomever, uh would, of course, tend to want somebody in the audience to report back on, gee, did they give anything away that uh, might have a potential for embarrassing us, or uh, how did somebody get onto certain information that we thought was highly secured? Um, it does add a note of uh, interest and a dimension of uh, uh, anxiety, if that's the way you want to lean. Uh, I tend to just have a really good time at these conferences, uh, it's great meeting my readers and people that 
you know, have a sense of me from uh, appearances and talks and all that good stuff. And always a great chance to see old friends and hang out and catch up and trade stories and, you know, catch colleagues' talks. Um, many of us know each other, but um, these are the events that we see each other at. And uh, so it kind of governs the rate of uh, seeing certain friends as a rule. Nick Redfern's a perfect example. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest people in the field, certainly one of the most prolific. And overwhelmingly, the times that I get to see Nick are when we're on the same speaker's bill. We do have a, a question from the chat room for you, Peter. Uh, Low Battery Dave wants to know if uh, there's ever gov- if you think there's ever government or military people uh, that are present, uh, either you know visibly, noticeably, or uh, undercover. Um, yeah, I, I always assume that, um, but remember that a lot of these folks have their own sincere personal interest in these subjects. I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, in fact, it was 1987, a uh, huge MUFON conference marking the 40th anniversary of Roswell, the Kenneth Arnold sightings. It was held at American University in Washington, D.C., very well-attended conference with a phenomenal speaker's lineup. And a buzz went up in the audience somewhere along the way that there was a congressman in the audience. And at the break, a number of us saw the guy. It was Senator Claiborne Pell. And... Uh, senior senator from Rhode Island and arguably, at the time, one of the most powerful men in the Senate, certainly from the Northeast, and at a break. You know, I mean, he's wearing a big honking badge that says Claiborne Pell on it, move on. And a number of us just kind of friendly come in toward him and, you know, nod and smile as he does, and somebody asked the question, Senator Pell, what are you doing here? And he said, I find this subject fascinating as a private citizen and gave us a smile. And I expect it was true, and maybe there was another dimension to it. But I always see and I always speak to people that I later find out are retired military of some level or another um, who are interested. I found out um, years ago that a former undersecretary of the Air Force um, once he retired, he and his wife started to really uh, learn more about UFOs, uh, you know, watch the lectures, read the books. Um, and my friend who knew them made it very clear to me that having known them since they were all in college together, this was not a big deal to her. It was something they had always had a private interest in, but never felt it was appropriate to put themselves out there or talk about their interest while he worked in the Pentagon, and uh, I would respect that. So, you know, some of it I think is real, some of it is imagined, but one can always expect that there are going to be folks who are uh, may have a, an official background and may be there officially or may be there because of personal interest. I would think that the best of them were not going to know the reasons and necessarily who they are, why they're there, or what the real deal is. But it, it, it makes it a little more interesting when you're looking at faces at the breaks and wondering who's the uh, the plant from Alpha Centauri or from uh, the Pentagon. Well, I'm sure that there is a great deal of people out there who have never been to one of these events uh, who are worried that you know they are going to get there and it's going to be the, the tinfoil hats and, and the pyramid cones and all that <laughs> stuff. But 
what what they don't realize is that most ufologists that I've encountered, most of the people that we've talked to here on the field, you know, they don't take themselves too seriously. They know, you know, that what they do is considered, uh, you know, it gets the, the hairy eyeball from some people. But yeah. what what's great about it is the amount of dedication and work that they put into the field of study. Uh, you can't help but, when you leave, have a newfound respect for the people that, that might speak at these. Overall, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. Um, the fact is that the subject has been tarred with such sensationalism and such distortion since the summer of 47, really the get-go of the modern age of you know, UFO sightings. But most UFO conferences are very much the equivalent of other peer group study conferences in any other area of history, science, engineering, you know, choose your own subject. And as one would find in any broad-based area of research, investigation, uh, study, there are many, many uh, breakdowns and specialty areas. Uh, Nick Redfern, for example, ha- has really established himself as a leading authority, not just on government cover-up, but on anomalous creatures, Fortean uh, doings, monsters, uh, mysteries in history, etc. Um, for me, because my personal interest has kind of led me in these areas and because of the opportunities I've had to work with some extraordinary people, I've come to be best known for specialty research in military and intelligence awareness uh, of this subject here and certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, the history of the distortion of the subject in media, so to say, uh, the history of the ridicule factor, uh, the attitudes of fundamentalist religious people toward this subject, uh, and certainly the abduction phenomena. For most of us, we're driven by a natural curiosity and if I do good work in the field, part of the reason is because there's so little, it's such a terrible way to make a living that you're not going to make more money focusing in and developing material on a topic that you don't find fully engaging. So most of us tend to follow subjects that we are the most interested in and then do the hard work and the research the way that anybody would write you know, a thesis paper or something. Um, either for publication, for presentation, for a book, for a lecture series, what have you. And, of course, now, um, you know, gone are the old days of the slide projectors, wonderful machines that they were, and you have any number of levels of visual presentations uh, accompanying a, a substantial talk. Um, I'm fairly workmanlike, and it's picture, picture, drawing, map, you know, mm-hmm. boom, boom, boom. But people, for example, like um, Rich Dolan and Kathleen Martin and Linda Howe, uh, their PowerPoint presentations are not only fully illustrative of what they're discussing, I think they're absolutely brilliant and push that wonderful technology to its edge in supporting the information that they have established in their research with really, really fine uh, visual materials uh, to fill out the story for us. And it's, after all, it's the visuals that capture people's uh, imagination more than anything. Uh, you know, if you can 
if you can just stand there and talk and and be gifted at it, like I know you are, Peter, you know that's one thing. But you, you know, if you can change what's up on the screen every few seconds, and that's going to keep people's attention in our MTV quick edit generation that we uh, we live in today. Well, you're right. Um, I think you know if you think of your favorite teacher in college or high school, um, or somebody that put information in front of you that you found so engaging that in maybe a small way it changed your life or your interests in life. You're talking about somebody who has the ability to educate while they hold your attention and, you know, it's not a bad word, to entertain you in the process. Uh, the best, you know, university lecturers have those same innate skills as a good stage actor to a degree. Um, and that is part of what the job calls for, to get up there and make it engaging and make it exciting and interesting. Um, I get very emotional in some of the talks that I do because it's emotional material. Uh, the Rendlesham Forest incident, with Matt is superbly familiar with, yeah. uh, brings up a great deal of strong feeling, and a lot of people that get involved in it, not even so much for the phenomenological aspect and the other intelligences and, you know, the... Um, the, the lighter-than-air kind of stuff, but on a darker, more grounded note, uh, what a certain uh, aspect of American intelligence put many of these uh, young airmen uh, who witnessed parts of this series of events in 1980 through after the fact, essentially to put the fear of God into them and scare the hell out of them, and to screw around with their memories, electronically, chemically, hypnotically, take your pick. Uh, I don't think any of these guys have fully been the same. And that, after passing through an initial highly anxious and genuinely fearful period when I began my research on it, um, what got me absolutely fully engaged was rage. I was furious because um, my co-author, who went on to become a very dear friend of mine, um, was put through the mill on this as much as anybody. Uh, and more recently, um, um, uh, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, who have come forward as earlier witnesses in the same event, have made it very clear of the impact that this has had on their lives as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, you do your best to... Um, make the folks that come to these conferences feel that they got their money's worth, that they've learned something, that they may now be just interested enough to go from being an armchair sort of consumer of information saying, you know what, I think I'd like to look into this little aspect of this thing, and maybe the bug will bite them, and they'll become a bit of a researcher and end up writing a paper and having it published or giving a talk at their local library and moving on from there. happens fairly regularly. We have a call on the line, uh, but before we, we take that call, I just want to mention you, you were discussing, Peter, about you know the best teachers and the ones that you're able to remember. And I remember, and, and Moniz can back me up. He had the same teacher, and I think Matt did as uh, Matt Costa did as well. But uh, we had a teacher who, Peter. yeah, exactly, uh, who would have no problem discussing UFOs openly in class, and you know wow. shared with us a lot of intriguing theories uh, in in an eighth grade science classroom. And then when I got to college, I had a professor who taught about conspiracies and assassinations. And, uh, you know, I went to school, by the way, on a Pell Grant. <laughs> Thank you, Senator <laughs> Claiborne. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and he taught me to, uh, to, to keep asking these questions. And without those two guys, there wouldn't be a spooky South Coast, most likely. Yeah. 
So that is wonderful to hear. And you know what? Um, even though these people deserve recognition, I'm not going to ask you their names because of the ridicule factor that still is attached to this damn subject. And the most important thing they did for you and that those people did for me was not give you specific information to bark back or hold as precious, but to question, to become more inquisitive, to inquire. Uh, for me, it's 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 one of the great threads of my life and uh, has added such a rich dimension to just doing the work that I do. Well, we'll, we'll actually openly say their names because we have done so many times. Uh, Peter Hassenfuss was the teacher who I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, had as well. He's the reason why I became a scientist. Yeah. Yep, and uh, we, wow. we owe a lot to him, and uh, I know he listens from time to time, and we're trying to get him to come on the show sometime. Oh, and the college cool. professor was uh, the late, great Dr. Philip Melanson, who... Uh, wrote a book about the uh, MLK assassination and uh, research oh the RFK God. assassination. Yep. It was a very well-known figure. He in, was uh, one I got to see the actual Zabruder film with. He he got it in. Jeez. Uh, yeah. You guys were really lucky to have teachers like that. We, yeah. we have been. We've been very fortunate. Wow. But uh, let's let's take this call here. Uh, yes. And if anybody else wants to call in and talk with Peter Robbins, tonight's subject is all things UFO. You can give us a call, 1-877-996-1420. Or five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. You can also email us crew at SpookySouthCoast.com or jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Good evening. You are on the air with Peter Robbins. How are you? All right. Uh, hello, Peter. Hello, guys. How you doing? What's happening? Hi. All right. Uh, I have a question for Peter, and I'd like to get Matt's uh, view on it, too, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I had once seen a UFO really close, you know, it was real, not a light, it was a real metal UFO. Anyways, uh, all the sound, it was during the day, and all the sound around had stopped, like everything had stopped. And I was looking to figure out online what that might be, and I'd come across something that they had said it was called the Oz Effect. I don't know if that's true or not, and I was wondering if you guys had any idea or know anything about that. Didn't I take this one first, Peter? Yes, you may. All right. The Oz effect of what you're talking about has happened repeatedly in a number of cases. I'll give you one good famous example. The Pashkagula case. Uh, Calvin and uh, Hickson, uh, Calvin Parker and John Hickson, I believe is his name, were fishing, and uh, this craft came and eventually abducted them. But the first thing they noticed is all the crickets and every piece of, like, animal around just stopped it the whole there was a complete silence around them as this craft approached it was also made note uh by jack and jim wiener in the rest of the allagash five case and uh there's several other famous cases i've also come across this on a number of personal cases that i've investigated also, how about you peter well i was going to say before peter it's also stan gordon mentioned that yes. happening in the pennsylvania ufos that he, he investigated sorry go ahead peter yeah um, I, I think part of what we're talking about here is a point of physics, if you will, uh, audio physics that we simply don't understand, like so much of areas surrounding the phenomena, the experience that UFOs, the intelligences behind them, seem able to uh, generate. This also goes for selective invisibility, uh, case after case after case, way beyond the realm of legend, lore, and mythology <clears throat> seem to have established with multiple witnesses over the decades that in certain cases, for reasons we can just make educated guesses about, that one individual can see X, 
the other one either sees nothing or they see why. And on a much more conventional note, but we do have to factor it in, if you are, you know, like you were, you are looking and you are seeing a UFO, and it is close up, and it is fully articulated, and you have never seen anything like it in your life. And it doesn't matter whether you've always taken the subject seriously or talked about it, you know, uh, in a condescending way. The chances are pretty good that you are going to go into physiological shock. That is uh, an adrenaline dump, an epinephrine dump, another chemical that uh, uh, lingers in the body for um, a day or so after that really enhances uh, uh, your experience. Uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, sure. yes. Yeah, and um, it would also um, include tunnel vision, where you can literally not tear yourself away from it, and auditory exclusion. You are so focused on the event that somebody could fire off a handgun 10 feet from your head and you literally wouldn't flinch. So those things also have to be factored in. But what you're discussing in terms of almost like a vacuum, where did all the noise go, is a genuine phenomena associated with certain close encounter and sighting incidents. And again, we can't explain how it happens. We can only acknowledge that it does and assure you that it wasn't an illusion and that is just part of the way it is sometimes. And caller, was that your one and only uh, sighting? Uh, well, that was no. I've seen it three times. But you know, I've seen like the orange glowing balls that people see. Mm-hmm. I've seen those twice, but that was my first time seeing a, you know, nuts and bolts UFO, and there was no sound around it, no sound around. And then uh, it was during the day, and the next thing I know. Me and my wife and my kids are standing on our front porch, and it's nighttime. Hmm. I may want to talk to you later. Can you tell me where this occurred and when? Uh, It was in uh, Vernonia, Oregon. It was about 10 years ago, I'd say. And and, uh, it was in a small town, and nobody talked about it. And nobody, I never heard a thing about it. You know, in our town, it's the middle of the day. it was just so weird. Did you and your family discuss it? Because you were obviously saying you were there with your family at watching it. Uh, we didn't discuss it for about two or three days, and then we we're like, hey, something weird happened the other day. We're like, yeah, and we started thinking about it, and it started coming back. And we just, it was just a weird, you know, and then when we came to, well, came you know, we to? basically came to on the porch, we looked out, and we could see an orange glowing ball and something orange dripped out from the bottom of it, and it was like a you know uh, half mile away maybe, and we didn't do anything about it. We just looked at each other, went in the house, and went to sleep. Went immediately to sleep. Went immediately. To sleep. What you're describing is so classic. Well, yes. First of all, <laughs> to anybody that's listening out there who is open-minded and trying to wrap their head around this thing and you know, cutting us even some slack. This has got to be where you say, no, this is not the way it would be. I'm a human being. This would change my life right away. I would be talking about it. I'd be asking about it. I'd be looking into it. My God, it happened with my family. I wouldn't have wasted a minute. Well, you know what? It doesn't happen that way. Either they, and this is where a lot of the good money is, have the ability to literally turn off that aspect of our thinking or it has something to do 
with holding that information inside, again, fear of ridicule does not cover it all. It is so unnatural that uh, every time I hear it confirmed in another case, there is a part of me that goes, wow, that really is part of it. Um, I'll tell you an anecdote. About 15 years ago or so, uh, Bud Hopkins' daughter gave him a book of stories and essays, as I recall, by a famous um, American playwright and screenwriter. And this gentleman happened to have a, uh, a rural property in Vermont. And um, his name is David Mamet. Most of you uh, that oh, wow. have yeah. any uh, interest in uh, the world of uh, you know culture uh, are familiar with it. And if Mr. Mamet is listening or anybody who knows him, you ask him about this. This is not fiction. He's writing about being in his cabin, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's now dark, and it's a very rural area set up on a hillside, and he watches a light of unknown origin coming in, seemingly under intelligent control, and it lands on his property. There is a glow coming from that area, and uh, he gets on the clothing he's going to need to go outside. He gets his revolver. He makes sure it's loaded, and as he's about to go out, again, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he just kind of yawns and says, oh, boy, I'm kind of tired, and it's been a long day, and, I'm, you know, I think I'm going to take a nap, <laughs> and he goes to sleep. Now, I cannot tell you how many times we have accounts like this or just like the one you gave us. Um, the UFO sighting that I had as a child so shocked me and so upset me and so overwhelmed me on a certain level that my sister Helen, who was six feet away from me when it happened, um, she made it clear in a sentence later that afternoon that she was interested in talking about it. And no, I was not interested in talking about it. And in our case, a couple of days didn't pass, something like 14 and a half years passed. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned it, and when I brought it up, it was like, oh, yeah, and she finished the sentence for me. And my reaction was, what just happened? You know, this is the most shocking event that I can imagine happening to us as kids, and how come we never talked about it? And she said it very clearly. She said, well, you know, I asked you that afternoon if you wanted to talk about it, and you said no. And I said, and? And she essentially said, well, you're my older brother. I love you. I respect you. I honored your wish. One day led to the next week, the next month, the next year, and here we are, you know, almost 15 years later, and you want to talk about it. So, yeah, it, it happened. I never forgot it. All right. Well, we're just about uh, out of time in this first hour, caller, but can you do me a favor? Yeah. Can you uh, give us a call here at the studio with the same number uh, during the news break, and, and Matt Moniz would like to talk to you a little bit more? Sure, sure. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank sharing. You. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. You know, it's always good when, when somebody feels comfortable enough uh, on our show to, to share an experience like that. What would worry me is exactly what you said, Peter, where, you know, if it happened to your family, you want to find a way to account for that missing time. You want to know what happened, not to yourself, but what happened to your loved ones during that time. It, it defies all human logic, and yet it is as regular as clockwork in multiple sighting cases. Um, Just like the ones I mentioned, only- yeah. Well, yeah, we can only question it. We, we don't understand it yet. Okay, well, we have about two minutes before we have to go, but we have another call on the line, so let's take this one really quickly. Uh, good evening. You are on the air with Peter Robbins. How are you? 
Hello, gentlemen. Hello. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, you mentioned something earlier. Actually, I was trying to look it up on the web. You mentioned something about uh, before you talked to your first guest, the gentleman that was on. He's still uh, on. <laughs> an abduction, a UFO abduction? Yes. In New, uh, New Hampshire or New England? Betty Hill case. Betty and Barney Hill. Correct. What's it called? Betty and Barney Hill. Betty and Barney Hill. Okay, so I, if I go... Google that. I'll find it. You'll yep. find many links to their name. Well, I'm looking at your website. It's pretty impressive. Well, if you go on our website, there's a book called Captured by uh, Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman. And uh, that is uh, their niece and uh, one of the world's foremost experts on UFOs uh, working together on that book. And you can get that through our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. And coming up in hour two, I want to talk more about the uh, the Hill case with Peter as well. So stay tuned because we'll have Betty and who? Time. Betty and Barney Hill. Betty and Barney Hill, out of where are they out of? Uh, Exeter, New Hampshire is where. New Hampshire, okay. All right. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll check it out. All right, and stay tuned for hour two because we'll talk more about it. Thanks oh, for calling. Great, thank you. Bye bye. Yes, we will. We'll be talking about more about that case, and we'll talk about all things UFO with Peter. And you can call in five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. Jump in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com on Spooky TV, where you can watch the video feed as well. Uh, we are working on getting all the archives up to date. I've been getting blasted on Facebook and online and on Twitter with people wondering where the shows are. I'm sorry. It's it's on me. <sighs> i got to catch up with it, but I will. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more. So uh, maybe in that time I can bang out a couple episodes, maybe, you think? Maybe. No. All right. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Reverse it. This way, please. Who's going to tell him? Oh, let's not wake him. We'll find out soon enough. Let him have one last. Spooky South Coast is back. No one is safe. Hold on tight. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting live on WBSM as well as on Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com. And uh, a fascinating news break for us there. I actually got to watch Moniz in the process of taking down a UFO experience and uh, seeing how that, that really works. And it's, you know, it's not unlike what I do in my job as a reporter. And uh, and that's similar to a same, lot of the same principles, yeah. And so uh, you are going to be offering that caller some more, yeah, information uh, and assistance. I'm going to let him forward me more information about what they feel comfortable about uh, sharing. Uh, I will go back and forth with them uh, uh, with a few more questions, and if they really uh, wish, I can hook them up with uh, other professionals that uh, can take them the next step further if that's the route they choose to go. And anybody that ever has any kind of experience, whether it be UFO, whether it be uh, you know other types of paranormal phenomena, any kind of haunting going on, or just anything that you need any help with, any assistance, you have any questions about, email us anytime, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. It goes to all of us. It goes to Chris Balzano. So uh, you'll be able to you know, get in touch with us, and we can help you get in touch with others. I mean, pretty much from the first couple of weeks that this show was on the air, 
we were already getting emails from people that were looking for assistance and you know we were trying to hook them up with people in their area that could help them out that was uh, almost 6 years ago so we uh, we've been able to develop uh, quite a network of friends and and colleagues and trusted advisors in that time that we can certainly get people uh, in touch with the right people. So if you ever have any problems, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com is a way to get a hold of us. You can also find me on Facebook as well, and I can help you out there. And you might also run into me tomorrow at the South Coast Toy and Comic Show. It's happening from 10 to 4 at the Seaport Inn and Marina in Fairhaven. And uh, just added, the big paranormal guest for this event is Brian Harnois, our friend from Ghost Hunters and Ghost Hunters International. He'll be there, uh, as well as our friends Penny Dreadful and Guru. They'll be there as well. Jimmy Superfly Snooker will be there. Uh, got a great Superfly story for you. I'll, I'll tell it real quick. I uh, was covering an event when I was writing on wrestling for the Standard Times, and uh, I was covering an event at Brockton High School, and I ran into Jimmy Snooker in the hallway as I was getting ready to leave. And I was telling him what a big fan I was of his, and you know how he's uh, you know one of my boyhood idols, and I remember all his matches and everything. He goes, Hey, that's great. That's great. Hey, you want a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> and even though I don't smoke, I took that cigarette from Jimmy Superfly Snooker, and I still have it somewhere. So uh, maybe if I get a chance to talk to him tomorrow, I'll ask him about that. Also, speaking of asking people things, uh, one of the other guests that will be there tomorrow, as I'm sure somebody that's heard, heard this question uh, many, many times, but Greedo will be there from Star Wars. And uh, let me just... Pull up the information. Boy, Steve, your website's moving slow. Uh, that would be uh, Maria de Aragon. Uh, she is the person who played Greedo. And what do you think the, the question that everybody asks Greedo is now when, when they run into her? Uh, they want to probably want to know how they feel about her shooting first now. Are you aware of this? Oh, in the remake. In the, in the special edition. Yes. They changed it from Han shooting first to Greedo shooting first. So I think it would be hilarious if she shows up in a Han shot first T-shirt like uh, George Lucas has been known to wear. But uh, also, speaking of Star Wars, uh, from Return of the Jedi, Lieutenant Renz, uh, Barry Holland, will be there. Uh, also, for those of you who are sports or just sports movies fans, John Barman Jr., you know him as Spalding Smales from Caddyshack, he'll be there. Uh, as well as sideshow performer Zahara Nak- Nak- I'm not going to pronounce that right, Zahara Nachash, and uh, as I mentioned, also uh, Brian Hanwar from Ghost Hunters and Penny Dreadful Ingaru. There's also going to be a whole slate of comic book artists that are going to be there as well. Uh, they'll have some of their stuff for sale, including our friend Jason Mayo, who works on the Tales of Rocky Point Park comic book. Uh, and you'll also be able to uh, purchase unique artwork there. Uh, there'll be tons of toys for sale, and it's just its a great time. its it, You can't have any more fun on a Sunday afternoon, at least legally, uh, for the small price that they pay you to get in, So, or that you pay to get in. So that's at the South Coast Toy and Comic Show tomorrow at the Seaport Inn and Marina from 10 to 4. It's only $6 for a ticket. That's at 110 Middle Street in Fairhaven, and uh, you, you can't beat the deal. And I think the General Lee's coming back, too, so we can go get our picture taken with it finally. Yeah. I was telling my cousin about that, and he's like, oh, my God, I'll be there. <laughs> he's like, I don't care about any of that other stuff. I just want to see the General Lee. Is a Batmobile coming this year? I don't think so. I, th- I think it's just a General Lee, but I'm not sure. So if Steve's listening, he can give us a call or shoot me a text, and uh, we'll be able to cover that. But tomorrow, June 12th, 10 to 4, $6, Seaport Inn and Marina. And uh, check it out. All right, let's get back into the discussion tonight on UFOs with our guest, Peter Robbins. Peter, thanks for hanging through our plug for the 
South Coast Toy and Comic Show. Uh, is there anybody that you want to see, uh, you know, come to one of these events? And if we can hook it up, we'll we'll bring you down as as Moniz's guest for the weekend. Oh boy, <laughs> um, uh, Jerry Ryan uh, would be uh, fairly close not, to the top of my list, even though she's moved on to being a lawyer. But um, she whiz. I'm just sentimentally attached to uh, her performances on uh, Star Trek. I, I want to uh, put out there, though, one of the one of the people that they always try to work on is uh, a, a local guy, Mark Goddard from Lost in Space. Oh, they always try oh. to get him, but he doesn't always. You know, he's, yeah. he's not always out there in the public eye anymore. Yeah, uh, I'm just sorry that I don't live closer. It sounds like it's going to be a great event. It always is. And speaking of great events, you know, you you go to all these different events uh, all over the country with Roswell and Exeter. We got to start putting some together here, Moniz. Here on the South Coast, we need a, yeah. you know, a paranormal UFO, bring it all together. That involves money. <laughs> not, <laughs> not if you do it right. <laughs> not if you do uh, it right. What you do is you make a whole bunch of false promises and then just hope everything works out for the best. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I count me in, Matt. Uh, I, I would love to be part of anything in that neck of the woods, uh, especially if I get to uh, stay at the Borden home in Fall sure. River. Sure. Absolutely, well, we can we can make that happen for you, Peter. Not a problem. I'm still scared, but you know it's like scared where you hope that the roller coaster won't crash. Scared, not you, that I'll be axe murdered. Put it this way: uh, you want a quick little story of what happened there last weekend? Sure. Not sure. Do I? Uh, well, it's it's interesting. Let's okay. Put it, let's put it that way. Um, I get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning on Sunday. Uh, by the owner, Leanne, uh, that uh, there's a lot of activity happening in the house and the couple of guests are uh, rather unnerved by what's going on. Uh, it turns out that they were getting phone calls from the house and there were guttural growling, you know, get-outs and, you know, th- all of this kind of stuff. To the business phone from the from, business phone? From the business phone to the guest's personal cell phone. Oh, okay. You know, comes up saying Lizzie Borden. He answers it. This is like 1 o'clock in the morning. And a uh, young couple, and he's getting his growling get-out and rah, 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 whatever. So he calls Leanne. Leanne's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I have all of the phones here in the house with me. So uh, she hangs up. Then all of a sudden the phone, his phone calls her back, and she's getting this weird noises and stuff like that. So she goes into the room, uh, and this guy winds up getting a phone call from his voicemail. How many people get a call from your voicemail? You can't. Um, they They answer the phone, and they've got an EVP of basically the same guttural growling and get out type of thing. And I've got a copy of that. Well, it's interesting. The the phone calls him again. The, you know, at this time, Leanne's in the room with them. They're getting a phone call from Lizzie Borden's, and Leanne's got all of the home phones there with her. It's like, I'm not calling you, <laughs> type of thing. And we're trying to figure uh. out trying to figure out what's going on. Well, it turns out that the young girl put on the dress from in. The, uh, the, yeah. Which one, the Elizabeth Montgomery dress? Yeah, or the, the Elizabeth from... Montgomery dress, and okay. he went into Mr. Borden's room and took all of the money and change that was in his um, okay. desk. Bo- both things extremely frowned upon. Yeah. 
and uh, they were having fun playing Mr. and Mrs. Borden in the bedroom that, that they were renting. And wound nice. Up, yeah. So they were not happy. She put the dress back, and he put the money back and apologized. And then things stopped. Well, Okay. I, I think I'll stay at a motel. <laughs> and I was going to say, Leanne, if you're listening, next time you want to call me, please do it from your cell phone. <laughs> yeah, at 2 in the morning. <laughs> I don't care what time she calls me. I'm just not answering anything that says Lizzie wow. Boyd and B&B anymore, I don't think. <laughs> and all of this wow. stuff has been recorded. Leanne has uh, pictures of all of the phone call records c- c- going and coming in from all of the phones. And uh, we have copies of the recordings as well. So it's... It's a. It was an interesting little experience, I guess. Yeah. Well, usually, usually when I get phone calls from people at two in the morning, it's uh, they're usually calling to tell me how much they love me. Yeah, <laughs> I love you, man. We don't hang out nearly enough anymore. But uh, anyway, it's nice when men get in touch with their feelings and have to express. <laughs> them it always takes liquid encouragement, though. Yeah. Well, we were talking in the first hour uh, about Betty and Barney Hill, and that caller called in looking for a little bit more information. And I, I think, you know, if you look at the hallmarks of, of ufology, you start, of course, in what was it, June of 1947 with Kenneth Arnold, uh, and then you have the Roswell crash. But I think it was Betty and Barney Hill that really Why made it. Why does everybody it? always skip the Maury Island case? That started actually before Kenneth Arnold and... Um... I'm just pointing out the hallmarks that people... So, you know, but I think Betty and Barney Go Hill are the time when it becomes personal yeah. to a lot of people who are interested in this, where it becomes, now it's not just about a sighting, but it's an, about an abduction, it's about an experience, it's about, you know, these entities actually invading to some degree. But Tim's right, and it's worth a moment of clarification. We have extraordinary documented events like the uh, February overflight of Los Angeles of a uh, unknown disc-shaped object that had... Uh, 1,430 rounds of artillery fired at it with no hits except for two deaths on the ground. We have Foo Fighter sightings during World War II, other ones going back to time immemorial. When we talk about um, the Arnold sighting and the uh, the Roswell uh, incident a scant week and a half later, that's what we usually refer to as the birth of the so-called modern age of UFO sightings. But, uh, yes, there's a certain amount of latitude that we have to give that. And when when we're talking about this case, I mean it's 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 strange not only for what happened to them, but for the fact that it seemed like at the time uh, there was no template for reporting this type of an experience. There was no uh, no basis of comparison. Uh, that everything that they said must have sounded completely just astounding to to those who were documenting it. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the Hills, for a little bit of background, were a couple who lived in New Hampshire. It was um, a second marriage for Barney. I, I forget whether Betty had been previously married. Uh, Barney was a postal worker, and Betty was a social worker. Um, they were also an interracial couple, uh, Barney Black and Betty White. And um, I know uh, from an archivist friend of mine, we were discussing this case some months back, and he said for him one of the interesting details was in the North and the Northeast where the case received a tremendous press. 
but really not until about 1965 or so, the incident itself and the particulars of it were the central aspect of the news coverage. In the South, it was the fact that these allegations were being made by a black man and a white woman who happened to be married, and that was considered at least as newsworthy there that they were uh, allegedly abducted by other intelligences from parts unknown. And, um, yeah, they were coming back from a a fairly brief holiday in the uh, Niagara Falls region, and the details are now, um, they're so well recorded and so well uh, researched. Uh, The timeline driving back that night, what they saw, when they saw it, is very well calibrated, and, and Kathy Martin does the best job anybody ever could of laying it out, although, again, uh, um, the um, late John Fuller, a wonderful writer who wrote what really stood as a seminal book on the Hill case for decades, uh, Interrupted Journey, and again, uh, a mid-'70s uh, movie being made from that, uh, lays it out very well uh, also. The actual hypnotic tapes, uh, again, for me, these things ultimately should be in the Smithsonian Museum. They are an extraordinarily important part of American history, human history, and world history, if you will. And the good doctor who did this work with them and regressed them back had no knowledge, no interest in, no previous fascination with this subject, but his specialty was working with returning World War II veterans who suffered from tremendous, tremendous problems brought on in the heart of conflict, uh, what was called war jitters or shell shock or any of a number of names. And he was the one who really pioneered hypnotic regression to get to the core of a fear, a terror, uh, a continuing point of stress in a person's life. And having heard segments of those actual tape recordings, now uh, digitally remastered, uh, was shattering to me. It was absolutely shattering. The terror that these people were caught up in at this time is really not open to debate. Uh, and the way that they learned about what had happened to them, completely independent from each other, and the documenting of the process... Uh, I think it, it, you know, you say, well, the thing happened in 1961 and supposedly countless other events like it have happened since. Surely the case is out of date now or whatever. No, it's still a touchstone for a brilliantly researched case. And, you know, like you said before, Tim, um, the way you go about your research for an article that you're writing as a journalist is functionally identical to what I do. Uh, my three biggest mentors who in great part taught me how to do or inspired me to do better on what I was doing. One was a a, a former member of the uh, staff of the Royal Hungarian Army during World War II. The other was a tough, no-nonsense, Italian-American, Brooklyn-born, New York City police detective who also happened to be a crack UFO investigator. And the other was a, a painter named Bud Hopkins who was figuring this thing out for himself. Um, you know, I don't get any channeled messages from Martians. I don't have a secret uh, source within the Pentagon or the intelligence community. I do the hard work of 
investigation and research from every source imaginable, always beginning with the most most mundane uh, explanation for the mystery or uh, the the condition of of what has happened here. And if I don't get an answer with that, I do not jump through the wildest explanation possible. I simply take one small step up to the next most mundane explanation and investigate that as well as I'm able to. You know, you triangulate a report with physical evidences, multiple witness, um, a history of the same types of events, anomalous events in the area, um, and so on and so on. You go into the local newspaper morgues and see if you can flesh it out there as well. So it's fairly plotting, nuts and bolts work, but isn't it exciting when you really can build and make a case on something like this? Well, you mentioned physical evidence, Peter, and, and one of the questions that's popped up in the chat room is regards to the physical evidence with the Betty and Barney Hill case, that, of course, being uh, the vehicle itself and, and Betty's dress. And I know, Moniz, you've had a chance to uh, investigate Betty's dress. I here. still have pieces of it, yes. And uh, usually when he has pieces of a woman's dress still left over, it's it's not for <laughs> UFO research, but in this case it is. Uh, yeah, I, I looked into uh, some of it for Betty. Uh, there's uh, plenty of other people that have done tests on it, too. Um, there there were some interesting stuff that I found, uh, but I was only limited with a small amount of material and uh, the re- resources that I had. But uh, it was a, a mixture of cotton and um, polyester, uh, vegetable dye, and from what I was able to determine with the instrumentation I was looking at it with, there was um, it seemed to have some sort of degradation done to it, and it it appeared to me like it was exposed to an extremely amount or heavy amount of UV radiation. Uh, there's uh, another scientist. Oh, I'm trying to remember her name. Peter, you. You will know. I, I, I correspond with her all the time too. Now that's going to um, New England based. Uh, no, she's actually in like Ohio. She did a lot mm. of the work on in Betty's book, um, in Captured. I'm blanking. Yeah, so am I. You know who we mean, though. Yes. Yes. And in <laughs> fact, um, just to parenthetically insert, if you have, um, if you're not familiar with this case or you've heard about it, and you would like to know more about it. The two, I think, the very best books to start with are Captured by uh, Betty and Barney's niece, Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, and the first book written on it, um, Interrupted Journey by John Fuller, which is available, you know, anywhere that sells used books. Uh, you can pick up a copy for a couple of dollars and add it to your library. Both invaluable in trying to understand and wrap your head around this extraordinarily important incident. And it's it's also with with captured you're getting secondhand firsthand information. Uh, I mean you're getting stuff that might have, especially in the later chapters. And we talked about this when we had Kathleen on the show. You're getting you know what Betty said long after the media attention had gone away, yes. and long after they were no longer writing newspaper stories about her, and what she said you know at the kitchen table. Well, literally, absolutely, literally, and nobody spent more time with Betty than Kathleen in in Betty's last years. And I I think in part that was because Kathleen happened to emerge as the person in the family who expressed the most interest in uh, moving forward with her aunt's accounts and uh, 
archiving the materials associated with the case. Uh, but to hear her speak about it, it's a it's a cut above most you know fine intellectual lectures that are on you know any of a thousand topics. I remembered the name, Peter Phyllis Buddinger. Hey, way to go! <laughs> so is it? That's what always happens. A few minutes later, bam, it pops right back in your head. Boink. <laughs> but uh, when when we're talking about uh, you know these these different case studies and these different incidents that have happened, uh, a lot of the times the the person uh, who had these experiences or the person who had these sightings are minimalized, and it becomes about the event itself. And I think that the one good thing about the Betty and Barney Hill case is we've, we've never lost sight of who they were as people. We've never lost sight of the enormous challenges that they faced um, just in their regular day-to-day life, drawing any extra attention to themselves. I can't imagine that there was a lot of people in, let's face it, somewhat redneck country New Hampshire uh, in, the, in the late 1960s that would be an interracial couple and would want to draw extra attention to themselves. Well, I think you're absolutely right there, and you brought up a very important point, and again, one uh, that we see repeatedly in good journalism, where allegations are made, uh, extraordinary things are claimed, evidence, alleged evidence is put forward. We need to take a look at the motivations, potential motivations, and character of the witnesses. And this is one of those places where the case, strengthens noticeably. These are two outstandingly decent people working hard to make a living, be good to the people around them, uh, struggle in a way that most of us can't even imagine as a, a pair of people who meet and fall in love and decide to get married in 1961, well, uh, shortly before that, who happened to be of different races. And in this country, that was a giant deal at the time. And in parts of this country, it's still something that uh, is a big deal. There was no um, move to capitalize on this, to make money, to become famous. Um, To a great degree, just the opposite. These were people of such good character that um, one of the things that will happen on September 3rd, I can tell you, is that they will be inducted into the Exeter UFO Hall of Fame, and very appropriately. And if anything is going to be specifically acknowledged beyond the obvious, it is going to be their work to help improve the conditions of the people of New Hampshire. Again, Betty was a lifelong social worker, and their contributions to the civil rights movement which is a lot lesser known, but should be well known. These were decent, progressive-thinking people who put their their beliefs where, um, into action every day of their lives. And I'm, I'm delighted that uh, conference organizer Dean Merchant has, has shared with me that uh, they are going to be honored for their contributions to the civil rights movement, uh, in part for me because it's so important to acknowledge these individuals as such. But in the bigger picture of UFO studies, wherever and whenever possible, I really like people to be able to see it set against the history of the 20th century uh, and very much locked in and interacting um, in ways that most people wouldn't even imagine. But uh, the history of UFOs in the 20th century 
it's just below the surface of the history of the 20th century and the interaction of events and the alleged coincidences and the personalities that play their way through both stories, I find eternally fascinating. Well, it's interesting that you, you bring up the idea of the history of the 20th century because one thing that I worry about uh, is how easily people fall into the trap of saying, you know, we're at a, a new crossroads in UFO research or whether we talk about other things like ghost research or anything along those lines where people seem to think that the time we're living in is uniquely different. Uh, but I wonder, is this massive amount of media coverage, I mean, and, and I know it's not a lot, but compared to what we've had in the past, there's a lot of, I don't want to say favorable, but I'll say tolerable UFO media coverage uh, these days. Is it any different than it might have been in the early to mid-1950s or maybe in the 1970s when it kind of worked its way into modern pop culture? Uh, or are we seeing, for the first time, people really starting to pay attention and take it a little more seriously? Um, very good question. Uh, I don't know if I can give you a strict answer to it, but I will say that when the subject was first introduced en masse to the American public in the summer of 1947, the major media, uh, in print media, it, the charge was led by uh, the flagship of, of American journalism, the New York Times, in broadcast media, the CBS, um, uh, NBC uh, were, again, large radio conglomerates, and they followed a similar tack. Um, small newspapers, local papers uh, around the United States treated the subject much more straightforward and much more seriously. What we see at the beginning is immediate condescension, distortion, bad pseudoscience as opposed to just pseudoscience, um, quoting unnamed authorities in uh, physics or astronomy or psychology all of whom uh, seem to be trying to outdo each other in terms of insulting the topic or even being consulted about it because I'm a serious person and we all know this is silly stuff. Um, but inevitably, all you need to do is see something, have an experience, or be confided by somebody that perhaps you know, love, respect, who you would trust literally with your life, telling you what they saw and that they are convinced that it was what they purport that it was. These are the things that, you know, they used to say that a, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Uh, not that I uh, support that definition necessarily, but I think that a, uh, somebody who takes UFOs seriously is somebody who either has an open mind, and is willing to take the time to educate themselves even to the basics of good scholarship and real evidences in the field, and Lord knows there's a lot of it, or somebody who has actually seen something in the night sky that genuinely puzzled them or during the day sky that they could not identify, and then happens to mention it to somebody and is hit with a certain amount of sarcasm, uh, even ridicule, um, knowing that people are laughing at them a bit behind their back. Why? Because they saw something in the sky that was unfamiliar to them that they couldn't identify. Isn't it interesting? The 
unbelievable level of viciousness and distortion that the decades have singled out to this particular subject. Now, again, back to your question, um, there have been periods where, um, you know, call them a flap, if you will, where major UFO uh, sightings have occurred in any number of parts of this country or the world, and people get kind of a, a bug up in their bonnet and, you know, yeah, I am serious about this. I have a friend who saw it. And, you know, I, I would trust them, and uh, I am, you know, going to look into this a bit more. But it's never enough to create a critical mass, at least not yet, to change things. I have a colleague who feels that... Um, Effort should be continued to be expended to build such a mass movement. His model is uh, the anti-Vietnam War uh, efforts that captured, um, you know, uh, young people of the 60s, ultimately a lot of their parents, ultimately people in the media. And at a certain point, the critical mass was such that President Johnson realized that it was lost. And so he's advocating blowing up universities. Well, uh, exactly. <laughs> okay. um, the violence that was uh, purported was um, much more modest than a lot of people were uh, trying to, uh, you know, put upon uh, the militant aspect of the left there. The main thing, though, is that we have never hit that point in UFO studies. Um, each year, again, I'm gratified to see, and it's a very informal, unscientific demographic, that there are more people that, because I'm a public person in the in the work, will tell me um, maybe that they wouldn't tell somebody else or say, you know, I am starting to talk to friends about this. And I don't frankly care what they think. I know it's real. Any intelligent person does. And it, that ridicule factor, in a way, is as interesting as the phenomena itself. And I'm just not going to buy it anymore. But things will continue to expand arithmetically and even you know the greatest push toward disclosure or the growth of the exopolitical movement both things that um, I think are are welcome but um, need to uh, you know look at this as realistically as possible um, things will continue pretty much in their own schizophrenic way where there'll be people like us and folks out in the audience there who say yeah I take this seriously I think I could handle the truth or a good dose of it. I think I could be there for my friends, you know, if they were upset if this announcement was made. But, yeah, I think we human beings can get through this. Um, and who knows? The game might be called by them rather than us at some time. Um, and at the same time, I don't think they want to fully reveal themselves to us because history is just filled with too many accounts of a advanced culture interfacing with a less advanced culture, and in pretty much every case that history records, the less advanced culture begins to wither and dies or collapses very quickly. Or as a, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> or as um, a tribal leader, an African, uh, said to Carl Jung. I recall around the First World War in trying to describe, you know, the contact with the British that they first had in the 1870s or 1880s and what happened to their culture after, his way of putting it was, our dreams died. So, again, I, I, I think it's hiccuping along and it's getting better, 
and we do have more people in the media, whether it's George Knapp in Nevada or somebody like George Nuri or somebody, um, well, uh, I guess most recently Leslie Kane, who comes to us from a, a very distinguished background as a journalist and a reporter for some of the best-known newspapers in America, who last year published her book on um, UFO uh, UFOs, but from the point of views of generals, ranking military personnel, uh, professional pilots, and people in government. Um, so every year, you know, there is good work out there, and it does affect the forces that be and uh, the greater public at large. But so far, nothing has come along to threaten to shove it into the realm of real life, real politics, and the society at large having to deal with it. We're not quite at that point yet. And like my friend Richard uh, Dolan, I have to say I do not think the government, our government, unlike other governments, is going to disclose what it knows. But I think one way or the other, disclosure is inevitable, whether it's going to come in the form of a Pentagon Papers kind of leak or a WikiLeaks thing or a publication of amazing photos of artifacts on the moon and Mars that people can't deny, I don't know. But it's going to happen. Or, um, or a landing in the middle of the Super Bowl. Well, yes. <laughs> Aren't uh, those usually held in a dome? No, that's true. Yeah. Sometimes, though, they <laughs> open the roofs. It's you nice know, weather. for me, um, um, sometimes you just have to go to science fiction because science does not give us models to... Um, base ways that things could change on. And I am not a big science fiction person, but I've read some of the best and was lucky enough as a kid to be introduced to uh, um, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and those things before I got more pop culture stuff. Anyway, you, you guys may be aware that in the early 80s and remade about two years ago was the science fiction uh, miniseries called V, which um, <laughs> I felt was pretty mediocre in many respects and after a while degenerated into every World War II resistance movie I've ever seen, except instead of Nazis, we had reptilian uh, aliens in uh, disguised as very hot-looking human beings in these great, you know, latex uh, skin jobs. But I thought that V had one of the most clever, original, interesting, and provocative premises that any science fiction story about, you know, otherworldly visitations had. And that's simply that the story opens with like 60 giant mile-and-a-half kind of motherships just sitting over the 60 biggest cities in the world, not revealing themselves, not doing anything, not coming forward for weeks or months, but game over. Well, we are talking with UFO writer, researcher, lecturer Peter Robbins, and if you have any questions, we have about 10 minutes, well, actually about 7 or 8 minutes left on the show, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, or post your question in the chat room on SpookyTV at SpookySouthCoast.com. This might be a loaded question, Peter, and it might be, I don't know, beyond any possibility of answering anytime soon. I'll make but, something uh, up. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was the idea that uh, people are so quick to cut down people who have had UFO sightings. They're so quick to say, no, that can't exist, so you're crazy for having seen it. 
what is it about humans? Why are we so hardwired to dismiss UFO sightings more, I, th- more than anything? It seems I got like. this one. It's called intellectual insecurity. You think that's the case? Yeah, they, they don't understand it, so it's easier to ridicule somebody about something you don't understand. But doesn't it seem like, I mean, maybe it's just my perception, because I talk to people about, say, ghosts on a more frequent basis, but doesn't it seem but like... ghosts you- are human. In, in in a person's perspective, this is something beyond them. They, they're they having the hard time of relinquishing the seat of being the the highest level of evolution that they know. You got I, what I'm I think Matt is really on to a, a very important aspect of this, that um, if you are, let's say, uh, you know, a church-going person or you go to synagogue on Saturdays or you go to the mosque or you go to your Buddhist temple or whatever, in any case, if you are locked into a way that the world happened and the religious stories that you hold dear, that you're inspired by, that help you through rough times, in no way cover this. And worst of all, if this is true, then there are questions about what I was brought up with. If we're made in the image of man, then whose image are they made in? Mm-hmm. Are we no longer the biggest... Uh, fleas on the back of the great cosmic dog. Are we somebody's graduate experiment gone horribly wrong? But whatever the combination of possibilities that so freak out uh, and challenge our imaginations or our intellects on this very important subject, we and our parents, and in many cases our grandparents, have been so brilliantly conditioned by our media by our government, by our intelligence communities, by popular culture itself to a degree, that the subject is nonsense, that for most folks they don't even know where to begin. And that is in great part the fault of an irresponsible media or media that, you know, I can't prove this, I can't show you any evidence for it. It's just something that has occurred to me as logical as a possible premise over the decades that I've been involved in these investigations, which is that in the summer of 1947, elements within the people closest to President Truman, either on their own to preserve uh, plausible deniability on the part of the president or under a very highly secured series of protocols, met with the movers and shakers in our media community. And at the time... That would have included William Randolph Hearst, uh, the Copleys, who owned the Copley newspaper syndicate out of uh, Boston, um, the uh, David Sarnoff of NBC, um, Bill Paley of CBS. I mean, the litany of people, their names that for some of us are lost to history, for others are just the logical folks. And I'm not even saying they were brought into it as much as, look, We're dealing with this whole new threat now. Most American historians date the beginning of the Cold War, very interestingly, to the summer of 1947, specifically July, when Foreign Affairs magazine carried an article called On Containment uh, by a then completely unknown political uh, theorist and political scientist named George Kennan, who went on to become an advisor to, I think, nine American presidents, died a decade ago at 101 years old, and essentially set up a theoretical paper which became the basis of keeping the Soviets in check to contain Soviet expansion during the Cold War. But if I were the head of NBC or the publisher of the New York Times 
and a representative of the President of the United States came to me and even suggested that it was in the public interest to downplay this phenomena for any number of reasons. You don't even have to know why, but we're dealing with the Soviets. It's hard to go into this. I'm, you know, I'm talking off the top of my head here, but the amount of hard work and intention, I'm speaking as somebody that has read every single article the New York Times has ever published on this phenomena in order and observing the patterns that carried into other print medium and other reportage in this country from 47 on, yes, we are challenged by this intellectually. Yes, our great Judeo-Christian heritage um, bears re-examining if these premises are correct and we're not alone in the universe, and they started to come in earnest in 1947, but even with those factors very much in play, we have had such a number done on us since that very important post-war year that it still has tremendous power, impact, and effectiveness in our so-called modern world of reporting. Well, that uh, that brings us just about to the end of the show. And I can say, you know, in, in my capabilities as a reporter... If anybody ever wants to share anything with me, I'll do all I can to make sure that it gets told. But uh, I hit the same brick wall that everybody else does. But I hit it a different way. I don't hit it because people say, hey, you know, we don't print stories about UFOs. I hit it because, wait, aren't you the sports guy that talks about this stuff all the time? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's that's that's my own handicap in this, I guess. But uh, why don't we run down really quickly, Peter, uh, where you'll be again. Uh, I know that the uh, Exeter UFO Festival will be Saturday, September 3rd. And the website yep. for that is ExeterUFOFestival.com. And, and you're also going to be at the uh, Roswell weekend. And w when exactly is that being held? Well, I won't be there, but I'll have many okay. friends there. And that runs from July 1st to July 4th this year. Uh, my next appearance is going to be on Saturday, the 16th of July in Philadelphia as part of UFO Awareness Day in Pennsylvania. Pretty progressive state, right, guys? Yeah, sounds yeah. good. <laughs> and I'll be speaking on um, a topic that I've uh, researched and refascinated by for years, uh, the very unusual circumstances surrounding the alleged suicide of our first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Vincent Forrestal, and he committed suicide like, um, well, he was murdered. <laughs> it, it, let me put it that simply. And um, in... I, I think you have the website for UFO Awareness Day as well there in your notes. I don't have mine at hand. Yep, it's uh, uh, meetup.com slash UFOs dash 61 slash events slash 21015541. And if anybody needs it again, <laughs> just email me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I'll shoot it off to you. Okay, great. Um, and, yeah, I'm hoping to see folks there. And uh, let us stay in touch, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Look forward to my return visit. We've had a missing time experience. It could not possibly have been since 10:15 that we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Peter. Good luck with all these events, and I uh, hope to see you at one of them one of these days. Thanks, guys. Have Best a good night, you. brother. Take care. Good night. You too, brother. Bye-bye. Right. That is, of course, the great Peter Robbins. Check out his book that he wrote with Larry Warren, Left at Eastgate. You can get it on SpookySouthCoast.com through our Spooky store. And be sure to check out all these events. Again, if you need any of that information, we'll have it all posted up on SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be back next week. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with next week because our original guest uh, had to 
postpone his appearance. We were going to have Governor Jesse Ventura uh, joining us to talk about his new book, 63 Documents that the Government Doesn't Want You to Read, but we're putting that off again to a little bit later in the summer. Uh, so just stay up to date with SpookySouthCoast.com and keep up to date on my Facebook page, and we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we know. So until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>